You're listening to audio from Gospel Collective Church. If you'd like to check out additional resources or learn more about us, please visit gcclex.com. As you're taking a seat, will you open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13? Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, as mentioned, we only have two more weeks, one more chapter in the book of Hebrews. Uh, next week, we're going to be covering about 19 verses. Today, we're only going to be covering six verses and three topics out of those six verses. We're going to cover the first and third one briefly, and the one right in the middle, verse 4, we're going to cover a little bit more at length um, because, uh, uh, honestly, we have actually covered the first two in different sermons over the last few years. And so this specific one, verse 4, we have not, and it is one of the most used and referenced scriptures concerning Christianity and marriage. So we want to expound on that and see relating passages as well. So let's read it all in context Verses 1 through 6, Hebrews chapter 13, um, and then we'll, we'll kind of break it apart. Uh, chapter 13, verse 1, God's word says this. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Verse 4, let Marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me. Starting off with verse 1, and as we read through verse 3, this talks about the importance of hospitality and remembering the church, the body of Christ all across the world who is being persecuted. First, it starts off saying, let brotherly love continue. That word continue at the end of verse 1, that word shows that our love, that our hospitality for each other, it is ongoing. Even when in different seasons of life and it looking different, it should in certain ways not stop. Even when it looks different in different seasons of life. But as it says, let brotherly love continue. And then look at verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. This tells us in verse 2 that we shouldn't stop or neglect showing that hospitality to strangers, people that we do not know. And this shows why our hospitality as Christians is so different than the world. And it's different because as you read verse 2, you recognize there's a spiritual purpose behind it. When you are unknowingly entertaining angels, as it says here, by doing it, there is a supernatural, life-changing, greater spiritual purpose and use in that hospitality. I mentioned in the other service that on my vision trip to Brazil um, several months ago, I recognized and noticed that as we were welcomed and welcomed into the homes of many people that did not profess to be believers or Christians, and as we were sharing testimonies and sharing the gospel with them, they were extremely hospitable. To the point where I started second guessing and I asked the missionary we were working with, like, are these Christians or unbelievers? Like, no, these are unbelievers. And I'm like, they're more hospitable than some Christians, sadly. I mean, every home we went in, coffee, food, I mean, they laid out the red carpet for us 
to hear from us, sharing the gospel and, and sharing testimony. And they didn't agree with it. Some of them was kind of like, you know, debating a little bit with these things. But they welcomed and loved that you were coming into their home. And I couldn't but help to think, though, as Christians, how much more should we be welcoming strangers, people, into our lives, into our homes, especially knowing there's a spiritual purpose that is attached to it. That in certain ways it represents what God did with us, welcoming us into his family, adopting us as his children through Jesus Christ. Is it not this that what we, we, we do? It's not just what we do, but it is ultimately who we are. We are to be hospitable because it is who we are and part of our identity welcomed as children of God. And Christians have had a strong, powerful history of helping the stranger. Remember in church history, just history in general, it's Christians that at one time were at the forefront of welcoming and helping neighbors and strangers and starting education and building schools and building hospitals. It's Christians that have often showed up during natural disasters to offer water, food, shelter, and medicine have been a part of and know of mission trips all dedicated toward that. I remember a few years back with the Western Kentucky tornado, many who had stepped up to give and serve to meet such needs. And in that same vein, I asked then, will our church be a part of that same history? Will we be hospitable to each other and to the strangers to keep or grow in that identity and culture, a church identity and a culture hospita hospitality, we must in certain ways care about things that neighbors care about, work from strengths and interests, and we must prioritize those that is included in the scripture as the most vulnerable or the least of these. And we must embrace this command like all other commands by God. Uh, shameless plug. We also need more community group homes. And so if you want to be hospitable by opening up your home, talk to Pastor Joey after the service. You're welcome, Pastor Joey, wherever you are. Verse 5, skipped over verse 4. We're going to come back to it. Verse 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear What? can man do to me? Here in these two verses we see and are reminded of, we don't need this, the scripture, but we see it in life itself, the dangers and the consequences that come with the love of money. Money is not evil in itself. It is the love or what becomes the idolatry of money. It's the love that is supposed to be reserved for the one who is the true owner of all things in this world, including our finances. And that's God. We are just stewards of this. And that's why we're not to love it. We're just entrusted to steward what God originally owns. And it is why these verses right here emphasizes, out of all things, contentment. We can be content instead of idolizing it because God, as it says here, is faithful. 
That in seasons and times where there is great concern and fear over finances, we can be content because we know God will, as it says here, the number one most repeated command in all of Scripture will never leave you nor forsake you. You think about even the verse 2 about praying and, and thinking about and caring for those across the world, Christians that are persecuted. And you think about this specific verse with our brothers and sisters that have very, very little, oh, but live for so much and are probably the richest in spirit. Why? Because they're content and know the Lord my God, he will never leave me nor forsake me. As verse 6 says, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And therefore we don't have the same fears as the world. Our jobs gets taken away. We're fired because we won't agree or do or participate in something unethical. And we can say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Embrace contentment in this all so important area regarding finances in your life and keep free from the love and idolatry of money. Now going back to verse 4, and we are going to spend the rest of this time on verse 4. Again, we've had sermons in the past in hospitality. January of 2022, we had three-week series, especially in one sermon over just that verse alone. And then when we went through 1 Corinthians, we actually did cover uh, generosity giving and then contentment in that way as well. Verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. As I had mentioned, this is one of the most used and referenced scriptures concerning Christianity and marriage. It starts off sharing that marriage is to be held in honor among all. What does that mean? That Greek word for honor here is a word called tomios. It means it is the most valuable, the most costly, and the most esteemed. It is their honorable, precious, and especially in reputation. And then, therefore, if you hear that definition in the Greek context, the most honored, esteemed, and costly, especially in reputation, and associate that with marriage. You know, and you should see how we as the church should look and be different than the world in how we view marriage. You think about some of the purposes of marriage, how it mirrors God's image in certain ways, how it helps sanctify each other, how you mutually can complement each other, and even the command that's given with marriage that we see in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply. And when talking about honoring marriage, it's wise to know what Jesus said about marriage. Some of you guys may remember this. It's in majority of the Gospels, but he's trying to be tricked by the Pharisees. And they ask him, hey, when is divorce permissible, basically? And oh, the, it, says, it says this, but then it also says this about divorce. And so, Jesus, what do you say? And Jesus' response back is this. Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. On the screens of the left and right, feel free to also flip to your phone or tablet or to your Bible so you can see it right before you. 
that says he, talking about Jesus, answered, have you not read that he who created them, talking about God creating man and woman from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. A couple things to keep in mind from Jesus' own words going back to Genesis, reusing that to answer this question that helps give us some context and how to best honor marriage like we're told to do. First, Jesus made it clear that marriage is God's plan, that he designed it. It's not a tradition that we can just throw out. God invented marriage when he invented you, when he invented me, when he invented humanity. Doesn't mean everybody is going to get married, married, but it is something that is something he created. He is God's plan as the purpose of what it illustrates and how it helps not only the church, but society, as we'll get to in a moment here. We also know and see, as Jesus answered, marriage is between a man and a woman. God designed it this way to beautifully and gloriously complement the genders, but then also specifically, as we'll conclude with this, represent the gospel in these ways, which only works with husband and bride and how it reflects, again, the greatest news in all of the world. Marriage is also to be permanent. What Jesus says, going back to Genesis, is that what God joins together, let no man separate. That God joins a couple in marriage and that no one, no one else should separate. It's meant to be permanent, which is why the very same unbreakable bond that God uses in the scriptures to describe the type of relationship and vow he makes with us is used for marriage. What's that word? A covenant. Yep, I saw you guys mouthing it. You had good pre-marriage counseling, good job. It's not a contract that can be torn up. It can't be broken at will. But it's a leaving and cleaving, and that word cleaving is like a glue together for life with Jesus at the center. And yet, as we know, as we talk about the scripture telling us we are to honor marriage, we don't always treat it that way. Which doesn't honor God or marriage as Jesus, as Jesus mentioned. And while also answering in that way, I also know we live in a broken, sinful world, and Jesus mentioned that when answering that as well. And he said this is why divorce will happen. And at certain times, I convictionally believe, I've mentioned this before, and you can listen to my sermon about marriage and divorce in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. At certain times, it can be permissible, although never what God intended. I convictionally do believe, though, that as expounded even more in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there are times where a marriage can end in a divorce. I know that not every Christian and pastor believes that, and that is okay because it's an open-handed issue with some of those convictions. But by 1 Corinthians 7, I believe in, in that interpretation of Scripture, while taking divorce very, very seriously, it is permissible for these reasons, for adultery. And I will share this. Even 
though I think it's permissible in that way, I've never ever, when that came up in, in counseling, I've never ever said, oh, here we go. You know, I actually think some couples, sadly, they're kind of hoping and waiting for that to happen so their marriage can end. They kind of value to the point that, yes, I'm going to stay true to this because I know, but as soon as that happens, whoop, that's my get out of jail card because that's what it feels like. And I think that's wrong. And therefore, counseling even toward that, we have the book of Hosea and we have plenty of examples. That's not first thing we go to. But you read what 1 Corinthians says, I think it is permissible. I also believe that in the abandonment from an unbeliever, abuse indicative or in, indicative, I mean, of an unbeliever and addictions with consequences that is proof and fruit of an unbeliever. Those are reasons why I'd say is, although I never counsel toward divorce, I've never told people, person, have a divorce because of these things, although I think it is permissible because I'm doing everything I can with what I strongly believe it is a covenant. How can this be redeemed? It's why sometimes to the uh, kind of awkward and kind of uh, a little bit of awkwardness with the, uh, with the spouses, um, every wedding that I do, uh, after the pre-marriage council and everything else, and they hear about covenant, they hear about divorce and all these things, I, I, I go through the pre-marriage counseling of all such things, but before that groom walks down the aisle, every single marriage I do, I take him aside and I say, hey, you know what we believe, what I believe about covenant and all those things. And listen, as horrible as this may seem, as awkward as this would be, as hated as you will be, if you really think that this is not going to last and that divorce is going to come five years from now or maybe even ten with kids involved, you get out now before kids are involved or before you say I do before God and her. No groom has walked away to this moment. But I say that to illustrate how important this is that you are about to do. I also on this topic really quickly don't want to spend a ton of time with this to help kind of shepherd our flock that is sitting in here right now. Want to briefly show some statistics about the risks of divorce. Years one through two is the, one of the highest risks of divorce. Some of this because of maybe kind of world's views of prenups. Um, this is the highest kind of, that, this statistically is the years, the highest chance of husbands cheating. Some of that is because couples rush into it. Um, but that is the highest, one of the highest years and seasons of divorce. Uh, I will share this for those who are in this room. That is why it is very, very important for you to be in Christian community in this season of time. I mean, just think about your lives and communities completely different where you have so many of your friend groups and maybe those were similar, same friend groups, but now you're a sinner living with another sinner. And so you need some Christian community for the both of you. And again, investment discipleship in that season and time so that it can go and attack what Satan's going to, uh, uh, to go against what Satan's going to attack and do during those first couple years. This is why pre-marriage counseling and sometimes post-marriage counseling, even the first couple years, is very, very important. It's 
Leave and cleave is very hard during these years. And again, two sinners that are saying, I do, now living with each other. So it will be tough. Years three through four, it's in kind of average or moderate risk of divorce. Uh, I think some of that happens because statistically, not saying this happens for everyone, but kids come around this time. Um, I think that when that does happen, uh, when, when kids come, it's kind of like, you know how that, that Cleveland mentality I gave an illustration of, like Cleveland against the world? <laughs> when you're a new parent, it's kind of like, it's us against the world. <laughs> Okay? Like we have to stick with each other because I don't know what I'm doing and I just need help. And, like, and so and you feel ill-prepared, but it actually kind of sticks you together a little bit more in some good ways. Um, and so, uh, again, average moderate risk of divorce uh, during that season time. Years five through eight, some of this is going to be maybe surprising to you. That is the highest risk of divorce. That is the highest risk of divorce, years five through eight. Some of you guys may not be surprised. Some of you guys have heard the seven-year itch. That's a, uh, a phrase popularized by a 1952 play, later a film that came out with Marilyn Monroe in it. That itch, it refers to a longstanding theory that relationship satisfaction declines after about seven years. And so for some, that, that's the time where they kind of feel like, hey, I'm not satisfied anymore. Again, maybe they came in with contractual reasons within that marriage, and because you're not meeting your part seven years or so later, um, that's when they get divorced. Also, although years one through two is statistically when husbands cheat, that's the time, this is the season and time where more wives will cheat during this season and time. Again, some of that is they don't feel like they're satisfied in that relationship anymore. And I want to take this moment again in shepherding while I'm giving these statistics is to tell couples in here, if this potentially describes you, reach out. Do not let things build up. Do not let things go too far. Don't put yourself into compromising positions. We're weak or online or kind of going back to old flames. Reach out. We want to help. Years 9 through 15 is low risk of divorce. This has been kind of called the sweet spot. Uh, I think some of that's because by year 9, many couples, uh, especially if they started a family, they no longer have infants at, uh, at, at the home. Um, there's even some evidence statistically that as children get older, parents uh, report, again, increased relationship satisfaction at that time. Um, I would say that where that I think is true and can be true for many Christian couples as well, that's a great opportunity to disciple other couples. When I say that, I don't mean, you know, discipleship's part of every Christian, no matter married, divorced, single, widow, that's a part of every one of us, but that can be a good season for you and your spouse potentially to invest a younger couple as well around that time. And then last of all, years 15 through 20 of marriage. Okay. I know it's on this screen. It says average or moderate risk of divorce. This, out of all those seasons and years, is the fastest growing of divorce. And I say that, and I will say this from a counseling standpoint and people I know as well. I'm seeing it more and more, not just in the world within Christians, that when kids are out of the home, there's greater risk of divorce. And it's the fastest growing as well. And therefore, I want to warn you, if your marriage has been hard, but there's a little bit of hanging on because of kids in the home, you need to strengthen some of those things so that it is you two in Jesus when they leave. Don't think that just because they aren't in the home, it's going to affect them less. Trust me, that marriage reflects something, even if they're not in the home. Invest in your marriage no matter what season, no matter what's going on. Honor 
marriage, as the scripture says. My second shameless plug. Did we mention that we have a marriage seminar coming up next month? Wow, what do you know? And this was before we were on this scripture as well. But as Joey's going to give more details, October, I think it's 13th, 14th, 14th, 15th, Friday evening, Saturday morning, very cheap, $35, marriage seminar. We will pay that for you if you can't do it, okay? You'll hear more, but this is why we want you to invest in marriage, why it's important to honor marriage by investing in it. And as it says, we are to honor marriage among all, whatever state you're in, married, single, divorced, widowed, the Bible commands everyone to honor marriage. And we know, sadly, marriage is not, not honored in our society. I mean, marriage is dismissed as irrelevant by many people. It's demeaned. It's many, uh, many have been delaying it more and more for wrong reasons. Marriage is being redefined. It's being ridiculed. It's being denounced and discouraged. It's ultimately been the opposite of honor, disrespected. I was reminded of this over the last few weeks when the latest celebrity divorce came out. You guys know what I'm talking about. Jonas Brother and whoever that girl is from Game of Thrones. And as the news came out, this is where I was discouraged by it. First off, I'm discouraged because we're actually surprised when like celebrities divorce. Like, do you understand like how hard that has to be? Schedules and all those things. And if they're not Christians, but this is really why I'm discouraged. Because first thing that comes out is everybody has an opinion on who's right and who's wrong. Oh, well, he should have and could have. Been, and the, Oh, but she has the right to be able to live her life and let her have her party. And, and she grew up acting, so she never had her teenage years. And blah, 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 blah. You could tell I read way too much on it, okay? <laughs> and all I can think of and did pray to God and say, oh, should we not just be burdened, not try to justify an excuse and give a reason and picking sides? Oh, I'm Team Jonas because they were teenage idol when I was in high school. No, I'm Team this. Should we not say this is heartbreaking because of what it represents? Honor marriage amongst all. And let me remind you, let me remind you, another purpose for marriage. A healthy marriage and a healthy marriages helps society flourish, which is why it should be held in high honor and esteem among all. Marriage is a fundamental block of communities, of the church, of state and nation, society and culture. And again, that does not mean that everybody should be getting married, needs to get married. But if you know and study anything about history, you will know that when in society marriages and family is strong, cultures and nations are strong. And you would know that wherever marriages and families are weak, Cultures and nations go into great decline. We are to honor marriage amongst all. And part of doing that is by creating a culture of it. I'm not going to spend a long time on this because there's going to be an entire message on that at that marriage seminar. Remember the Greek word that I'd mentioned, held in high esteem regarding reputation and witness. And as a church, we have a certain opportunity to create a culture of that. Then it says at the very end of verse 4, we are to not only honor marriage amongst all, but it says, and we are to let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. 
And this is where when you're preaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse, you hit these things and you maybe don't want to say it. It's uncomfortable, but you must address it because it's in God's word. And we know that we honor marriage with biblical sexual ethics that are going to be countercultural to the world. We're going to be countercultural because of what we value, what we say, what we do in our ethics concerning sexuality, concerning sex itself. I mean, it's why as Christians, you always look like an outsider. It's why the virgins in the show The Bachelor will always be made fun of. It's why in the heyday, you guys know, remember Tim Tebow, the greatest kind of college athlete celebrity, which college sports is an idol of itself, and then he's the most well-known and famous at some time, and everybody knew and heard he's a Christian and that he was a virgin, to the point where Ashley Madison, a, uh, uh, an adultery website, former adultery website, offered $1 million to anyone who can either prove that Tim Tebow was not a virgin or if you can seduce him to lose his virginity. That's the world we live in. I remember during that time I worked with a church and that church partnered with the Tebows for mission trips and I picked up his brother at the airport and he told me, it is crazy. He had to move out of his dorm because multiple drunk women stopped at his dorm at night trying to seduce him. I don't know if it was the million dollar thing or just Tim Tebow and the biceps he likes to show off. But all I know is that we are countercultural from the world. Why do we go through some extremities? Well, that word undefiled here, what does that mean to stay or be pure? And even more, sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is mentioned in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5 as well. Read with me in the screens to the left and right. It says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, same words that was used in Hebrews chapter 13, 4, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, which we know we've turned sex into an idol, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You see, in this passage that you see right here, and in our verse in Hebrews, which says, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and idolaters. Um, this passage here in the New Testament, it's often translated the Greek word, some of you guys have heard this, porneia. That word also means whoredom or fornication, idolatry. It means a surrendering of sexual purity. It's primarily used of premarital sexual relations. And from this Greek word, we get that English word pornography stemming from the concept of selling off. You see, sexual immorality is the selling off of sexual purity and involves any type of sexual expression outside the boundaries of a biblically defined marriage relationship. Again, this is why this is important. Because ultimately, listen, church, our oneness with another person represents our oneness with Christ. You know that two become one that's mentioned in Genesis that Jesus repeats and that we're going to get to in a moment here in Ephesians 5 as well? Our oneness with another person represents our oneness with Christ. It and this sin separates us spiritually from God. And when I say that, I don't believe or mean or think that 
one will lose their salvation when they sin in this way. Although if it's continual and unrepentant, just like any other sin, there must be some questions and we must judge by fruit. But I'm going to be honest. I believe if you are in sexual sin, as it has some strong language, both here in Ephesians 5, later, I mean also in Hebrews 4, Hebrews 13, 4, you cannot grow, pray, have a burden for the lost with blatant sexual sin. You can fake it for a while, and plenty do, but it's a facade. You're a whitewashed tomb on the inside, spiritually dead when struggling with repetitive sexual sin. And it will have further consequences. I'm reminded of this in an example that I've used before. Derek Rimshaway, a writer for Gospel Coalition um, and former college minister, he asked Tim Keller at a seminar before, what is the number one major obstacle for our current culture when it comes to seeing revival or spiritual renewal in the church, especially with respect to repentance? This is right after uh, Tim Keller had released his book, Center Church, which spoke a lot about spiritual renewal and revival. At the time, Keller, who had one of the largest churches in New York City, majority singles and young adults, he answered this, the biggest obstacle to repentance for revival in the church is the basic fact that almost all singles outside the church and a majority inside the church are sleeping with each other. Out of all things, he said, it is good, old-fashioned fornication. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember hearing this like several years ago and thinking like, really? Out of all things, the big hang-up for the biggest reason why college students or young adults like will not experience spiritual renewal and revival is, is, is sex out of all things, not the intellectual things, not like science and postmodern philosophy and all these things, the church's history of violence or consumerism and greed and, and all these things that we're so worried about. No, good old-fashioned fornication. Why C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity all those years ago, there are a few of Christianity's teachings more offensive and likely to drive people away from hearing the gospel than its sex ethic. Because many college students and young adults don't want to turn to God, or at least not the kind of God that you find in the gospel, if he has commandments on sex that we find so restrictive. And culturally, again, that's where we are at. In fact, in answering this, Tim Keller illustrated this point by talking by, about a tactic that his college minister would use in New York City. He says, it was almost kind of cruel to do it, but he said you'd be amazed at how often it worked. Families or, or, or teenagers that went off to college, when they would come back to their church and the college minister would meet with them, and the ones who would say, hey, I'm not doing good, or pretty much in a roundabout way starting to say, hey, I'm starting to have, really have these doubts. I'm really starting to like, not believe in the Lord, want to follow the Lord, having a hard time finding a church, all those type of things. And as they were explaining and saying this, the college minister would just kind of interrupt them on point. He's like, so who are you sleeping with? And more times than not, they'd be like, how did you know? Like a big revelation or a big thing. No, it's because statistically, when they were exposed and started going that road, when they had the freedom to be able to do it, and then they realized, hey, I was told this is wrong, no bad, and all of a sudden they had freedom to do it, but it kind of feels good, they started spiritually spiraling as well. That's what he said. Again, it makes sense, right? When you're engaged in behavior you've been raised to believe is wrong, 
but then you find fun more than that, powerfully enslaving, and you want to find reasons to disbelieve your former moral convictions. As Tim Keller pointed out, Aldous Huxley, who many are reading again, being influenced by his classic Brave New World, he famously confessed in his work, ends and means that he didn't want there to be a God and meaning because it interfered with his sexual freedom. And while most today haven't worked it out quite as philosophically as Huxley, they're in that same exact place spiritually. Sexual sin is an idol in our generation that cannot be ignored. It's a sin and idol within marriages that are being dishonored. And it must be dethroned if the worship of the true God is going to fill the temple of his church again. The reason why college students lose faith, not atheism, not wokeness, not liberalism, not nationalism, not purity culture or politics, sexual sin. And there is law, grace, and the gospel for sexual sin. Read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. This is nothing I haven't said before. Verse 18 in 1 Corinthians 6 says, flee from sexual immorality. Run. Do you hear that? Run from it. Get far away. Take proper precautions. Without judging or trying to limit the awkwardness, this area more than most will need more precautions, boundaries, and limits. And I know there can be calls of legalism here. And I'm telling you to obey what the Holy Spirit is convicting you to do. But I do know, based off everything that I had said about the dangers and consequences of sexual sin, and then now going and seeing in 1 Corinthians, flee from sexual immorality, I'm encouraging you, run and be open to take some of those, what seems to be extreme precautions for this. Because look at what verse 18 through 19 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. That's why it is connected so much spiritually. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Even scripture here is comparing the sin differently when it comes to the physical consequences we receive from it on earth in comparison to other sins outside of the body. And when I say that, when we read this, yes, we know there's no sin in the eyes of God that's different when it comes to Jesus paying for it in the cross, when it comes to justification and salvation. And no, this should not justify other sins. You know, the glutton that excuses it saying, well, at least I'm not sleeping around. Yeah, you're still sitting before the Lord. But I will say this. I have never, ever done marriage counseling and tried to do everything I can to point to Scripture and save a divorce, which I can't even do it. It's only God. And I've worked in student ministry long enough to see and feel the consequences of that. And it's never happened by gluttony or somebody passing the speed limit. It's from these areas. And so I want to encourage you and tell you, with what the scripture says, flee, flee and run from this sin. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. The sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Will you take that to heart this morning? even if it's in honor of your future marriage or your marriage right now? 
would be open to what the Holy Spirit may be saying to take certain precautions that may seem extreme from others. And don't judge one. I was so discouraged years back when former Vice President Mike Pence had mentioned how he would not put himself to be alone with a girl. And again, I'm not saying you have to do that. That's wrong. I know there's certain work and everything that, that might not be possible for some of you. But what I was discouraged about it was this. I did not see attacks just from like media and people that did not know Christ. I saw attacks from Christians with it. I mean, he said, my wife appreciates this. And we're attacking and calling him legalistic. Do you read the scripture here? At least he's taken certain precautions to flee from even being accused or any potential prevention. Do you know how many wives I know that appreciate that here? How much worry and stress that has been reduced, not because of lack of trust, but because there is just not opportunity to break trust. When it comes to certain internet filters and technology and media limits that others may say is legalistic, but for you, I will maybe not watch nudity or sexually crude talk. That again, others will say maybe it's legalistic and not saying every person is for them on certain things. But will you take God's word seriously? I experienced this a bit with some questions that came up when I used Christopher Nolan's latest film as an illustration. And many in here who had known, that's like your favorite director. Why didn't you go see that at the theater? Well, again, people weren't accusing me of being legalistic, but I said, I'm going to go that extra step because of what it says here. Again, sometimes there's needed law here. But just like there's needed law, there's also even more needed grace. I love the fact that you read the scriptures and out of all people who love Jesus, it says it was prostitutes that loved him and felt like they could go to him. I mean, think about that. There's a reason why the story of Hosea is so powerful. We read in Hebrews right here, let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And as true as that is, we also know and read in the scripture that those who fell in those categories felt the most free to come to Jesus for forgiveness and grace as well. And we see, of course, in the conclusions of 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, you're not your own, it says. For you were bought with the price. You remember the gospel that speaks into this. He died, he paid for these things. He rose from the grave, which ultimately that same resurrected life can speak new life and what seems to be enslaving you or making you spiritually dead. And through the same response we have in salvation, but then in sanctification for this, repent and believe. Repent and believe. So glorify God in your body. And when keeping the marriage bed undefiled, you have a greater chance in being that witness and in conclusion, honoring marriage as it glorifies God through the gospel. What I'm going to share in conclusion here is from pre-marriage material that I rewrote over sabbatical. So if you are one of the engaged couples that's going to be going through this, you're going to hear it again several months from now, sorry. 
the ultimate thing to see in the Bible about marriage. And we honor it because it exists for God's glory. It's not just the doing of God, but it is the display of God. And it is designed by God to display His glory in a way that no other event or institution is described. Seriously. We see it most clearly when it's connected from Genesis 2.24, the same verse that Jesus quotes with its other use in Ephesians 5.31-32. In fact, Ephesians 5 is the substance of Tim Keller's classic book, The Meaning of Marriage, and how it connects and expounds on Genesis 2. Let me remind you what Jesus quoted himself. Genesis 2.24, God says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And you must ask when reading that, what kind of relationship is this then? That people, two people are held together. Can they walk away from that relationship? Can they go from spouse to spouse? Is this relationship only rooted and bonded in feelings or romance or love or sexual desire? What about the need for companionship or cultural convenience? Those words, hold fast to his wife, and the words, they shall become one flesh, it points to something far more deeper and more permanent than serial marriages and occasional adultery. To just fleeting emotion and romance. What these words point to is a marriage as a sacred covenant rooted in covenant commitments that will stand against every storm as long as we both shall live as you covenant to. And that is only implicit here and it's first mentioned in Genesis, but it becomes explicit when the mystery of marriage is more fully revealed. Ephesians 5, 31 through 32 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But look at this all-important interpretation in verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Remember what I said, all of God's word is truly Jesus' words. Not just what he said there and as he's repeating in Genesis, but now we have in Ephesians 5 that this beautiful thing that Jesus had said, this important, all-important thing, is now fully more explained because of the gospel. In other words, marriage is patterned after Jesus Christ's covenant commitment to the church. That Christ thought of himself as the bridegroom coming for his bride, the true people of God. And Paul knew that part of this message in that ministry was to gather the bride, the true people of God, who would trust Christ. And his calling was to betroth the church to her husband, Jesus. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 11:2. I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Christ knew that he would have to pay for his bride with his own blood. And he called this relationship the new covenant. It's what we mention every month when we partake in the Lord's Supper. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And this is what Paul was referring to when he says that marriage is a great mystery. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church because Jesus obtained the church by his blood, formed a new covenant with her, and it became an unbreakable marriage. You are covenanting with me, and I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I love you so much, I sacrificed myself for you. 
and I pursued you out of that, will you enter into this? Because I will give you the world. Oh, to know that marriage displays the gospel of Jesus Christ and the covenant he made with you. That is the ultimate thing we could say about marriage and how it exists for God's glory. To display him. That it's patterned after Christ's covenant relationship to his redeemed people, the church. It's why marriage exists. It's one of the most supreme purposes. Church, in a moment here, we're going to sing a song we have not sung in a while. It was one of, uh, one of our former worship leaders' favorites. Some of you guys may remember if you were back in the teardown setup days. Actually, when I first kind of came as campus pastor, Taylor Gillum, he absolutely loved this song. And part of it is because of the lyrics as it illustrates Jesus Christ and his love for the bride, the church. And so as we sing this, maybe that's a prayer for some of you. And before we do that, I want you to spend some time just with the Lord real quick. Whatever he's revealing, whatever he's saying, whatever you need to do in light of God's word today, whether it be in honoring marriage, honoring marriage amongst all sexual immorality. Again, no, there's grace. No, repent and believe. If you want to reach out with anything, again, we will help out. Love to meet with you and discuss and talk about anything. Maybe it had to do with hospitality. Again, maybe it had to do with contentment. Whatever the Lord was leading this morning, spend some time with them. Let's pray and sing. Father, we again thank you for your word. And God, we, like we just got done singing that hymn, we do want to trust it as hard as it can be at times and obey it. And I don't know what that means and the prayers that are lifted to you right now, what that looks like to trust you and obey it. But God, I know that when we are obedient to even some of these hard Man's given and honoring marriage, honoring marriage amongst all, how countercultural that's going to be to the world, and especially in the area of, of, of sexual immorality, Lord. I believe that there is going to be future flourishing marriages in light of some of these prayers and commitments today. I believe that there is going to be some health being poured in life into some current marriages, and maybe some prevention of some hard things for Father, I know that with this topic, and this is, God, you know I'm speaking about myself here, Lord God, like we're just going to sing about in a moment here, Lord, when it comes to even me not, not being obedient and not stepping out on an action of who I need to be as the husband to my, to my wife. I know there's lots of guilt. There's lots of shame. I know that's attached with much of what we heard when it comes to sexual sin and comes to marriage. But God, as we sing this, and for some pray this, that we're, you are making us like you, clothing us in white, bringing beauty from ashes, for you will have your bride who's free of all her guilt and rid of all her shame. And you know us by our true name. God, I pray that we will sing praise for what you can do, the only answer to what the world experiences and the breaking of the covenant and how it separates spiritually and sexual sin. The only answer that you could free us of the guilt and rid us of the shame. I pray, Lord, that this song will be even praise of how we respond to your word today. Thank you. We pray this in your name, Jesus.